0: Welcome to Law My Praxis. We've tried to record this intro 10 times. Louise, oh my god oh my god oh my god we made a podcast oh my god we did it it's finally happened it only took two years which is actually in the grand scheme of publication timescales or grant timescales two years is pretty on point for academia to be honest so I think we should congratulate That's ourselves for like that
1: an article in mid-range journal this is an output welcome some would say this is a pathway to impact some would say that those people would be fucking <laughs> dicks <laughs> a few moments later this is hard
0: it's hard I thought this would be easier I thought it was going to be like whimsical and fun maybe we shouldn't you know what let's just lean into it this is awkward and we're bad at it welcome to lol my praxis
1: let's make them feel like it more off the cuff and avant-garde and we're really clever and also really funny naturally
2: two hours later
1: why are we like this?
0: (laughs) I don't know hopefully people enjoy it otherwise it's just another moment of yelling into the void it really to be honest I guess the podcast is another form of like yelling into the void which is basically what my thesis was because three people read it
1: it's depressing when you talk about accessibility and all that in your thesis and then it's read by two people so accessible though so accessible
0: so accessible i mean we should just add a pdf of the thesis as like show notes to every show (laughs) (laughs) download here
2: Six and a half hours later. I'm a
0: doctor
1: now. I'm a doctor now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not a useful one, though. Just
1: another another doctor. Oh, my God. The time when my wife for years believed that Alex was an actual doctor. An An actual actual doctor. (laughs) I am a doctor, bitch. An actual environmentalist, like an environmental science person, like genuinely saving the world. So the day that she realized that Alex's research was poetry and the environment, she went... Fucking mental. Excuse you, poetry
0: can save the world. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I don't believe that. I mean, also, you know, spelling mistakes in Victorian novels, it's cutting edge stuff. If someone doesn't jump on that soon. I mean, people have had literally hundreds of years. Yeah, but, you know, time's ticking away. Time is ticking away. (laughs) One eternity later.
0: There was a pandemic. That was shit. We're probably going to have another one. Here's a podcast full of funky fresh material from academics currently being crushed by the Wheel of Precarity and the daily grind of the neoliberal devaluation of the arts and humanities. That'll fucking do. Welcome to Lol My Praxis, where this week we will be talking to Dr. Taylor Driggers about gender-bending dragons and non-turf schools of witchcraft and wizardry.
1: Taylor holds a PhD in Slut Dragons from the University of Glasgow, and is currently working on his first book project, which looks at the relationship between Christian theology, fantasy, and queer feminist imaginary. Does that sound about right,
2: Taylor? Yeah, it does. Yeah, hi. Thank you for having me on.
0: Are you ready to do our intro theme tune? Yes. Ah, oh, it's going to be difficult without being able to see you to count in. We'll just say three, two, one. That—that that is a way yeah. of counting. Okay, okay,
1: okay. <laughs> we customize our jingles according to our guests and their research. It would be nice if you were to guess. The kazoo tune that we were going to be playing. So yeah, let's let's just get on with the jingle. Okay, okay you ready? We're gonna
2: get go on. one, three, two, one. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I stopped Amazing. playing because it was so unsynced. <laughs> was that in sync?
2: <laughs> Amazing. Amazing.
1: Um, so, Doctor Trailer Digger is what your jingle uh, what was what? it? Also, did you call him Trailer? Sorry, uh, one second. Did you
0: just call him Trailer? <laughs> no. Trailer. <laughs> pretty sure you said Trailer
1: Digger. I mean,
2: because of the combination of my first name and my surname, I've been called a wide variety of
1: things. <laughs> Well, we'll get on to that. I don't know if I've ever mentioned <laughs> this before, but I'm dyslexic, so... <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, wonderful rendition of um Fellowship theme from Lord of the Rings. Um, <gasps> Specific. Well Amazing. I was just yeah. going
1: for, like, Lord of the Rings, but you, you know your shit, obviously. <laughs> of course he does. He's got a PhD in this kind of shit. My work offers an original contribution to knowledge. You know when you do this icebreakers and people are like, oh, tell us something interesting, and it's always pure shite. And so we'd like to know a boring fact about yourself.
2: Oh, God. Um, boring fact.
1: It's so difficult. I'm so interesting. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
2: kidding, I'm just riveting you guys. You have no idea. <laughs> no. Um, uh, well, recently, um, my partner and I um, finally just broke down and bought a, a vinyl turntable record player,
0: Yes, welcome to the club, my friend. Yeah,
2: we've become tedious vinyl snobs. Finally, <laughs> what's the first record you bought? Because we are the very cliched gays that we are, we had to buy it with a copy of Kate Bush's Hounds of Love. Um, yes, so, yes, yeah. That's what's happening in my life this week.
0: Oh my god! And this is just a quick one to say that Louise, please do not start singing the Kate Bush.
2: Always, please do sing the Kate Bush, always.
1: It's it's really <laughs> tempting. My karaoke song, since I was 16 and we did Weathering Heights at school, I sort of honed my Kate Bush impersonation. So I do the full dance at every opportunity, every every chance to do karaoke. It's always Weathering Heights, whether people like it or not.
0: Sometimes even when it's not karaoke. <laughs> yes. Sometimes when it's just Monday morning in the yes, office. Yes,
1: sometimes when you <laughs> happen to be sharing an office with me or an office wall with me. I had those reports back quite frequently. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that was incredibly boring. That that wasn't boring. That was No, it wasn't that was sadly, you know. That was, that was co- sadly entertaining. So this yeah. is completely fucked it up, Taylor. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'm sorry to
1: disappoint. See how Gen Z are just taking the piss out of millennials at the moment. That's one of those tweets. That's like we're well, millennials always buying vinyl. So it's just if it's the sort of thing that Gen Z <laughs> will take the piss out of, then I don't think it's boring.
2: No.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think think another thing on that chain was like, oh, millennials will just complain about us on their podcasts. So uh, I've just done that. Okay, so you have been very kind and provided us with an academic Tinder bio. So this is the point in our show where we we like to see if, you know, ourselves and our listeners would be, you know, tempted to swipe right on uh, you kind of academically speaking and you know maybe yeah, so instead of
0: like the because you know how again like at conferences or before you go to a conference you have to provide a really tedious bio in which people always go over the word count on so we just figured we try and kind of like cut it down to the briefest possible moment so this is how you would introduce yourself at say like a major conference
1: brief because we're talking really tender and briefs and yeah sex so <laughs> sorry I'm, I'm just very aware that we're going to be talking a lot about sex probably so i just thought i'd lower the
2: tone as for usual.
0: (laughs) So yeah, so introduce yourself to us uh, as if we had just met over really shit coffee RIP conferences.
2: Are are you reading that or am
0: I?
1: No, you read it out. You read it out. Please. (laughs) We'd we'd get the emphasis wrong.
2: Yeah. So my religion is like my sex life, full of strange beasts and always waiting for the second coming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Louise, uh, let's deliberate. What
1: are you thinking? Which way would you swipe? I mean, the fact that there could be a second coming. I'm just... Quite always a bonus. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm not interested in that because no, thank you. But a second coming for you're not interested in multiple. No, I'm interested in multiple orgasms, obviously, but not like multiple ejaculationy male orgasms. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just saying that it's bloody impressive as a cisgendered man to be like, oh, second coming great like oh, true yeah I, i'm intrigued Probably i'm intrigued, intrigued by I, didn't this. Even, I
0: didn't even think of
1: that yeah there's a lot of there's some, it's definitely a subtext of, of like major virility going on there yes i love it
2: <laughs> i either that or the implication of multiple erogenous zones oh. um you know here, oh. here is the rectum of grave oh. that kind of thing nice
1: <laughs> I, i'm yeah hmm as a thinker, uh, is uh, the uh, rectum a grave? Incredible. That is, I think I'm... Turned on? Ah, I was just confused. <laughs> <laughs> or a bit of both. I mean, I feel like we should comment on the strange beasts because neither of us I really was gonna say, zoned in. Is that is that more your your, your kink, Uh
0: What strange beasts? Just because I study ecology doesn't mean I'm always about the beasts, Louise. But yeah, I, I was also very interested in that. So what's the strangest beast you've ever been with? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Are we still talking about academics, or
0: uh... yes? This is a met- this is a very very flexible metaphor, and you can take it wherever you want.
2: <laughs> also, it's a really funny story that I, I did actually run this um, by my partner when I was trying to think of one, and when I finally arrived at that, he just looked at me and said, "I'm not sure what that says about me."
1: Uh, <laughs> he loved it.
2: Yeah, but if, if, if we're talking um, in terms of academics, though, I'd say slut dragons are yeah absolutely up there and i I love that phrase by the way and i'm going to continue to use it (laughs) i just want to
0: have a shout out to that it is from the the terrible rick and morty show if you haven't seen the episode where they do go to the cave of slut dragons it is worth it they have a gigantic slut orgy and have to try and create the slut dragon phoenix Um, frankly frankly
1: taylor i just don't know how you got through your viva on dragons and queer theologies if you don't know about slut dragons i mean I didn't know about it either. Alex made me watch it like about
2: 15 minutes ago.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> call yourself a doctor of slut dragons. What?
2: I know. my All my credentials are just out the window now. We might as well just pack up and go home. <laughs>
0: I think we could save it, though. Who do you think is the sluttiest dragon and why?
2: That's a tough question. I'm going to say probably, because they're the ones that come most readily to mind, probably the very sexy, kind of daddy-looking dragons from the reboot of the Spyro video games. (laughs) Amazing. My my partner was playing those a few months ago, and the one takeaway he had from it was all of these dragons are really, really hot. And I was like, yes, welcome to my PhD.
0: (laughs) I love that idea of like a daddy dragon actually I don't know if I do singing out loud made me feel a bit weird but
1: it's better than saying the are attracted it's a little purple dragon in spiral. yeah it's better it's yeah. true. true I like my dragon small and purple that sounds a bit I don't know maybe maybe <laughs> <laughs> This is now getting me... Actually, have
0: you ever been to... I don't know why this is like the third time that this has come up in the last couple of months, but Bad Dragon. Have you ever been across Bad Dragon? Either of you. I don't know what that is. Okay, well, I would just like you both to Google Bad Dragon and their products. BadDragon.com.
2: Is this going to fuck up my search algorithm?
0: Maybe in the best possible way. Okay. But yeah, so go to BadDragon.com and click on Dildos. Okay, fantasy themed...
1: alex <laughs> so for this this is a oh no no it's bad hyphen dragon yeah no i've, oh, I've made no. it dot com masturbators wearables mistake. packers <laughs> low what's a little i don't want, want to know what a low square is dildos currently on un- <laughs> they're currently unavailable because covid 19
2: oh my god these are amazing.
1: <laughs> so, my question to you, Taylor, is: um, if you if you had
0: to choose one,
2: there's <gasps> so many. Wait, what, was this the company that, like a couple of years ago, made the shape of water dildo in the shape of the, like what they? <gasps> call oh my the god, fish it probably paper. is.
0: What was the name of the the fish creature?
2: I don't know. I don't know the name of the fish creature. I don't think it had a name in the movie.
0: But if you are on the dildo page, like, which one would you go for? This is my real question. Oh my God, this is, Um, wow. This is a lot. And, you know, you can interpret that how you mean in terms of which one do you think is more representative of your personal energy? Which one do you think you could actually ever use? I want to know. Um, They all look
1: quite painful. Why the enchanted (laughs) apple? Um, I presume that's a flashlight. maybe? Maybe why it has a face and teeth if it's an apple?
0: Yeah, I think I'm on a different page.
2: Oh, are we on a different page? Yeah, we might be on a different page.
1: <laughs> All right, well, well, I'm just enjoying some. Why is it a tentacle? <laughs> I mean,
0: th- this went downhill very fast. <laughs> Sorry, it just came to mind. Um, But, you know, we can
1: get back on track. (laughs) I mean, we could, or we could ask Taylor more about Dragon Dildos.
2: I mean, the the Scorn one is pretty good, both because of the name and because... Just the general vibe that it gives off,
1: I mean, that is very
0: gold and very thick. I like that that's a that's a that's a strong choice, yeah, could you describe
1: it because I can't find the page?
2: yeah, so it, it, it's it's this very kind of scaly dragony kind of looking dildo that that's kind of got this gold sheen to it um but also the general shape of it looks very kind of spiky and spiny mm.
1: mm-hmm. do you think a dragon needs to be spiny do just do you think that it's more about sort of i don't know girth of scales or whatever like what <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm moving on from dildos here i am moving on to like, very like, cleverly yeah, yeah very cleverly like ideal dragon like yeah what makes a
0: dragon like are we talking just like big lizard? Is there an official definition of a of a dragon like a fantasy dragon?
2: I don't think so. I think there like there's a variety of ways that they get described. They you know, I guess the uniting thing would be just big lizard in general and and usually they fly. I don't know if there's necessarily a kind of rigid framework that they get locked into or not i I, I don't think there is
0: excellent use of the word rigid
1: yeah i know i I was gonna say like kudos to me for not giggling (laughs) and do they always breathe fire um
2: most of the time if we're talking like modern fantasy literature then yes most of the time they do but not always although i can't think of any notable exceptions off the top of my head
1: the abject
0: Our main question that we came up with after reading through some of your work is, is Jesus a queer wizard?
2: Oh, I'm going to say... Probably no, but then yeah, it depends on whether you're talking about Jesus specifically or just kind of messianic figures in general. And the latter is kind of more where my work kind of tends towards. I do have a colleague who researches Jesus kind of with gay aesthetics in video games. But yeah, is Jesus a queer wizard? I think the jury's still out on that. I think hmm. Which
1: is the most troubling part? The is Jesus a wizard or or is Jesus queer.
2: Probably the wizard part to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, probably the wizard part. I mean, it, is Jesus queer? Yeah, I mean that that's kind of this ongoing discussion Um, within queer theology. And and in fact, there's this quite iconic critical work from 2003 by Marcella Althaus-Reed called The Queer God. And in that, she kind of lays out a vision of queer theology and kind of looking at the history of Christianity and and all of its kind of colonial violences, as well as how that's tied to its very restrictive sexual mores and gender norms and and all of that kind of thing. And and she, she lays out a vision for queer theology in which... Christ appears not at the center of Christianity's history, but as its sexual stranger at the gates. That's kind of the the phrasing Mm. that she uses. Mm. So for her, God is this very kind of sexually and politically and economically disruptive force. So for her, the incarnation of Christ, the fact that God took on an earthly body, means that God comes to inhabit the kind of chaos of our embodied and sexual lives. Yeah, so so in that sense, yes, Jesus is queer. Yeah, the wizard thing is strange. I I, I would maybe tend more towards, just because it's what I'm more interested in, looking at queering Jesus more through the lens of monstrosity. So, so kind of talking about, for instance, queer dragons, the monster being something that disrupts our idea of what embodiment should be or what identity should look like, what sexuality or or desire, how that should function in kind of normal everyday society so yeah I, I'm, I'm more interested in the monstrous side of things than maybe the wizard mm-hmm. side of things although i do kind of dabble in a bit of um talking about wizards as well
1: yeah i mean it's taking a lot of strength for me not to talk about stuffs again but i really want to get my mind out of the gutter <laughs> um but yeah like this idea about like disruption and stuff so like i'm just thinking this is my lapsed catholicism that is extremely lapsed thinking about like sort of jesus and like the destruction of the temple and stuff so that, the idea about mm. so that i can totally kind of see that reading of like oh here's the establishment let's fuck with it and then see a deity in that but i was just wondering about if you could talk more about sort of monstrosity and about like how fantasy literature deals with that notion of, sort of disruptive um theologies
2: yeah so i think for me the important thing about fantasy is that it creates other worlds that are made out of elements of our own But they are kind of removed from the kind of normal associations that we would have. So fantasy is a space where you can displace religion from the kind of immediate oppressions that it's complicit in. But also, I think particularly for queer people and and people who are marginalized within kind of normative church spaces that the church can often become a place where you're kind of caught up in endless debates, where you're constantly expected to defend your own existence. And within that, it can be very, very hard to develop your own kind of personal theology of how you actually cope with being in this space, you know, and, and not only being a religious person, but being a person in a society that is still very much shaped by Western Christianity's inheritances and kind of all the baggage that comes with that. So so for me, fantasy literature becomes a space where you can imaginatively contend with all of that and kind of remove yourself from those kind of more tedious and dehumanizing and, and all sorts of awful things the, 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 these these debates that never seem to go anywhere
0: mm. is there also a sense though in which some i mean i, I absolutely see that there's like a like a radical potential to fantasy to kind of fuck with the norm to put it in, yeah, a, absolutely. <laughs> in a in a that kind of way
2: yeah, because it's not our world. Um, yes. And so you get to kind of reimagine how theology would look otherwise, you know, and kind of disrupt the the normative way things are. So, for instance, one of the texts that I look at is this novel by Ursula K. Le Guin called The Left Hand of Darkness. And in that, she imagines a society in which there is no binary gender at all. And in fact, mm-hmm. the the physiology of everyone in this society is kind of constantly shifting And so everyone has the potential to, for instance, get pregnant. Almost everyone kind of fulfills multiple sexual roles. And and also because of that, the society looks completely different. And she goes into looking at not only what, how society's political systems would be structured differently, but also what the religious orders in the society would look like. And that even goes down to the structure of the theology and actually the metaphysics of the thing. So it does enable you to, as you said, fuck with the norm and, and, and fuck with how we assume things are going to go in theology and religious practice, but then also how those things get bound up with political and economic structures. Mm-hmm my life into pieces this is my research methodology
0: is there also a point though where fantasy can actually reinforce those various same structures that you're saying it kind of tries to deconstruct i mean i'm sure there are pretty like fascist fantasy imaginaries out there absolutely so not sure if you research any of those in particular, because, I mean, I wouldn't want to touch it with a, a very long stick. Yeah, <laughs> understand or, or or a very long staff, or even one of the bad dragon dildos, really. Just, like, keep it away from me. I'm not touching that with my wizard staff. <laughs> yes, thank you, Louise. Wonderful. You're welcome. <laughs> but yeah, is, is, have, have you contended with that at all in your research? And do you see these particular texts that you're engaging with as, like, an active
2: response to those in some sort of way? Absolutely. And actually, that's one of the main things that I am actively resisting in my research, because that can particularly be a temptation when you are talking about theology and fantasy literature, and a lot of scholarship on religion and fantasy up until very recently, and, and actually still, there's a lot of it still getting produced today that does tend to be very conservative. So mm-hmm. one of the things about fantasy is that makes it particularly amenable to religious readings is that it does allow you to inhabit this kind of Grand mythic world order in which human beings do kind of interface with God or the gods directly. And that can be very liberating, you know, in terms of reimagining those religious or, or mythic orders. But there also is a danger um, and a temptation in kind of romanticizing that mm. and in evoking this nostalgia for this nebulous past when supposedly religion was the norm. Yeah, so so a, a lot of scholarship on religion and fantasy literature focuses on fantasy texts by people like C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien, and they're really, really interested... In how fantasy can reproduce religious doctrines or, or kind of invigorate them with a kind of new imagination while changing very, very little about.
1: Them. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but um, Aslan is a bit like Jesus.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if anybody's written anything about that, but I, I've heard rumours that that might be the case.
0: <laughs> I mean, I know you've already done a PhD, but, yeah, it's, but it's, it's a, it, that seems like a pretty in, like important yeah. thing. As a thinker. Yeah, you might be able to write about it. I yeah, ma- maybe make
1: sure you cite me, though.
2: Yeah, I'm just shocking that I overlooked that. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. I
0: mean, has anyone actually written about The line the Witch, the Wardrobe in relation to, like, um, furries? Because It's
2: probably out there. Yeah, it's, it's probably out there. I mean, what, one of the things about genre criticism in general is that in a lot of ways fandom discourse is way ahead of the academic writing (laughs) on a lot of these things you know and and i've I've been to a few fan conventions and and presented papers at them and just the the level of discourse there i find is way way ahead of what's going on in the academy and we we have a lot of catching up to do
0: what's your favorite fandom oh god and have you ever written a fanfic oh
2: i fanfic is praxis Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, and, and there are people who do amazing work in fan studies. I have never written fanfic, but uh, a while back I got very, very into the Star Wars fandom when the kind of sequel trilogy was first taking off, especially with The Last Jedi because there were so many interesting ideas being explored in that film that connected to what I was doing in my own research at the time. But yeah, I've I've kind of fallen off that a bit now because I was a bit disappointed with how the the most recent- Because
0: nothing came to fruition and it was just really shit at the very end. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: how it just wasn't, a sequel to any of the films that
0: yeah that with. whole thing about like oh ray comes from nothing actually lol she comes from everything <laughs> fuck off like you just no. ruined everything actually, with that ending
2: lines the entire time yeah, <laughs> yeah. i haven't seen them <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. well you know that that doesn't mean you can't engage with it louise hence fandoms true 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 you don't need to. See, you don't need to see it to engage with it. That's exactly what we all do as academics. I never read yeah. the book.
2: Back to the question um, about. Oh, Thank guys. you for keeping. Yeah, up yeah. Cheers, yeah. <laughs> dear.
1: At least you know what you're doing. But
2: <laughs> there, 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 there was one more thing I did want to say about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of conservative or, or fascist fantasy imaginaries. But there, there, a, a particular example that I kind of talk about in in my thesis was there is an essay by Alison Milbank who's quite a prominent English theologian, kind of talking about the potential of literature for apologetics. And she is talking about this particular passage from the end of Lord of the Rings, where it's after Frodo has kind of left Middle-earth for the Grey Havens, and Sam comes back to his wife, Rosie, and their children. And there's this sentence where she says this is life as it should be lived and I just find it very very telling that out of a novel in which characters are literally confronted with the powers of evil and struggling with all of these internal moral and and ethical battles that that moment that kind of heterosexual reproductive domestic scene is the bit that you would choose to highlight as theologically enriching yeah I, I, I just find that utterly, utterly strange. And to be honest, I think it really speaks to a failure of imagination and a lot of conservative theological imaginaries, mm. really. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting how prevalent that reactionary impulse is in a lot of theological fantasy criticism. And and so really, this project sprung out of me getting fed up with constantly writing about heterosexual white men in, in the <laughs> In, in in the stuff that I had yeah. that, that I was writing on theology and fantasy,
1: yeah. can I just quickly bring up Lion in the wardrobe or just the Narnia series? A fucking Justice for Susan. I'm yes. sorry. Justice for
2: Susan. Yeah, Justice Absolutely. for Susan.
1: Susan <laughs> gets a fucking horn so she can call for aid, and which also is really dirty. Uh, but also, Susan <laughs> doesn't make it into Narnia because she's too interested in boys and makeup. Sorry. Can, I just wanted a moment to say. Justice
2: for Susan. All her siblings die in a train crash, <laughs> and yet she's not allowed into Narnia <laughs> because she's interested in boys and me. Yeah, justice for Susan. I'm I'm with you on that, and and it's funny because I, I you know in, in my thesis I do talk about one of C.S. Lewis's lesser known novels, um, Till We Have Faces, and and it is interesting because whenever I bring that up, you know I, I always get the response of, oh, but wasn't C.S. Lewis really misogynistic and homophobic? And I'm like, yes, that's why I'm, you know, talking about him in this context is to kind of see, is there a way that we can maybe reclaim some of these texts as well and find a way of reading them against the grain? Mm -hmm. Um, The conclusion that I ultimately kind of come to is... Well, kind of. Maybe there's limits to it, but it's still an interesting thing to do. And and that novel is particularly reimagining the myth of Eros and Psyche, but from the perspective of Psyche's older sister, and it's all about her very troubled and kind of antagonistic relationship to the gods and how it's kind of connected to her relationship with her sexuality and her gender mm. and, and all of these various other forces. And it's it, it's a really interesting novel. It, it is troubling for a lot of the same reasons why C.S. Lewis's other fiction is troubling, but I, I find it a really interesting text to kind of push back against some of the more conservative criticism and, and be like, you know, n- not only... Can fantasy allow us to reimagine these things, but it can also, radical potential is also there in otherwise conservative texts because it is fantasy, but because it does exist in that other world.
1: just thinking about reimaginings or just seeing if we can interpret in a, in a way against the grain and linking into, you know, Susan's fall into makeup. Your thesis makes this kind of central claim that fantasy literature is theology dressed in drag. We're really wondering mm-hmm. about that and uh, drag and dragons and is there a link? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So really what I'm getting at when I say that, the- that fantasy is theology dressed in drag is basically what we've been talking about, that fantasy can dress up these theological concepts and these kind of mythic world orders in this kind of very often flamboyant aesthetic does that in the interest of kind of deconstructing and dismantling the norms that theology often builds up and inscribes, including those that are related to sexuality and gender. So the particular example that I give, partly because drag and dragons is a very fun pun that I couldn't resist using is is Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea series. And this is probably what you were alluding to talking about non-turfy schools of witchcraft and wizardry. So the Earthsea series was also written by Ursula Le Guin and it kind of tells the story or a a series of stories really centered around this school for wizards. And it's interesting because while she was in the process of writing the books, Le Guin kind of had this radical feminist awakening through the 70s and 80s. And so once you get to the fourth book in the series, Tahanu, Le Guin is kind of starting to revise the world order that she had built up in the first three novels, and recentering characters who had been more marginalized in those books. So in that book, she also introduces this kind of myth, uh, this kind of creation myth, That exists for this world that says that humans and dragons were once one and the same creature and that there still exists some people who are simultaneously human and dragon and most of these figures are women they're often women who have experienced sexual trauma of some kind or who live in poverty. But in, in any case, they're, they're women who would otherwise be overlooked by this kind of quasi-monastic order that exists at this school for wizards. Through these figures, she kind of begins to pick at the threads of the world that she's built. Who can say where the road goes, where the day flows,
1: only- Blind Peer Review. We're interested in, you know, what's the sort of academic beef at the moment on Twitter, what's happening in the world. And I think you're probably the best person to ask about She Who Must Not Be Named. Mm. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was going to come up. So yep. can you give us any sort of... What's your hot take on? Yeah. Yeah, What's your hot take? Like, I'm I'm trying to formulate a question, but equally, I'm just like, I know that you have so many opinions. Uh, probably. (laughs) What opinions?
0: Yeah, we just want them all back in a a fancy question later on.
2: I have some scattered opinions. I don't really have coherent hot take per se. It's
1: Not necessarily worth coherence, to be honest.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I do have some interesting points of reflection that that are maybe kind of tangentially related to the, the whole transphobia thing but maybe not the central issue. And I've kind of played around with the idea of, of writing them down, at some point down the line, because when it all surfaced a couple of weeks ago, I didn't think it was the time to, to broadcast my thoughts right Mm -hmm. then necessarily. But um, one of the things that came to light with the reveal of of J.K. Rowling's transphobia...
0: The worst plot twist ever. I don't like this sequel. This is a shit
2: sequel. (laughs) One of the things that surfaced was the fact that J.K. Rowling's pseudonym that she uses for her detective novels, Robert Galbraith... Mm -hmm. Is shared by one of the scientists who kind of pioneered gay conversion therapy.
0: Oh, what the fuck! I know that. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. Oh my fucking god!
2: Yeah, and, and it's, it's one of those things where it's like this could easily be a coincidence, but at the very least, it—you know—she could have done a Google, you know. So it, it, it hasn't been all, all that to say whether it's a coincidence or not. It put into perspective some of the ways in which queerness. Kind of functions in the Harry Potter series, and particularly I was reminded of the depiction of Remus Lupin. So, if anyone isn't aware, Lupin is a werewolf. He also takes a potion, I think it's called the Wolfsbane Potion, to kind of control his werewolf impulses and keep them in check there's a lot that can probably be said about respectability, politics, and all of that kind of thing there that I have many half-formed thoughts on mm. as of yet. But in in the sixth book, there's a plot point where another character talks, who is a woman, expresses interest in him. And up until now, lycanthropy in the series has functioned as this kind of Allegorical stand in for queerness, specifically for HIV positivity as well. Mm-hmm. And the only character, other than Lupin, who the, the only other prominent werewolf character in the series is a character who's heavily implied to be a pedophile who preys on young children with the express intent of turning them into werewolves, which just gets into all kinds of homophobic stigmas and stigmas surrounding HIV and AIDS. But then also, as I was saying, in in the sixth book, up until that point, Lupin has been kind of a, a queer coded mm-hmm. character. And another character, Tonks, who is a woman, um, expresses interest in him. And at first, he does not express interest in her, and he actually expresses reluctance to enter into a relationship with her. And then Other characters pressure him to pursue a relationship with her, to get married with her, to have a child. And this is kind of the extent to which that's dealt with in the text. The rest of the series kind of just acts like this is completely fine, that this man was coerced into a heterosexual relationship that he did not want. And all the characters treat this as if it's fine. That was put into quite sharp perspective. Again, whether it's coincidental or not, But when I found out that that there was that commonality between J.K. Rowling's pseudonym and a psychiatrist who kind of pioneered gay conversion therapy, that was immediately where my brain went. Um, There's a lot that can be said about the blog posts that she wrote. And the timing and just. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in, in In the middle of Black Lives Matter protests. Especially when there were Pride women, Month, right? <laughs> trans women um, <laughs> happening in the states. Yeah, I, I mean, and and also, you know, the fact that she used her own trauma to justify yeah. her prejudiced beliefs, which I felt was just. I, I'm I'm not probably the person that the main person to to comment on that because I am not trans and also you know do not share. JK Rowling's marginalization or or, or trauma um, or anything like that. The, The only thing I can really say about that is that it does kind of sadden me when people use their own trauma as an excuse to traumatize and systemically oppress other people. And and that's really all that I can say about that.
1: Thank you for sharing your opinions because it is, for want of a better term, it is a fucking shitstorm and it has so <laughs> many levels. Um, but yeah, I think it was really interesting what you're saying about sort of werewolf and discourse and that um repression of sort of queer sexualities within the um series. But I also think as well like just as we're kind of coming to the end of the the podcast but do you think that separating text from author is important because from some of the things we have been talking about about you know reading fantasy against the grain and stuff do you think that we can still find things in the series or in other texts that are kind of coded as conservative
2: i think so i think we can a lot of times when people talk about separating text from author it's kind of hard to disentangle the kind of multiple things going on within that because i think on, on the one hand you know yes of course we can absolutely Absolutely read texts against the grain. And, and I'm a huge and ardent defender of um, the practice of doing that. At the same time, I think it becomes a lot more complicated when a creator is still living and is still profiting off of the kind of cultural ubiquity and continued popularity and consumption mm-hmm. of their work. And I think especially when we're talking about a phenomenon that's as huge as Harry Potter, that needs to be part of the conversation um, because it becomes a matter of who are you giving your money to? What kind of work are you economically supporting? And could that capital instead be going toward um, more marginalized creators um, and, and people who are you know not as well known?
0: Do you have a particular um, I don't know, series or author that you th- would think deserves more attention
2: um, well, right now, um, I've been really, really into um, Samuel R. Delaney's Nevarion series, which is um, a series of fantasy books from the 70s and 80s. Um, so it's, Samuel R. Delaney is this um, radical black queer author of fantasy and, and science fiction. He's actually more well known for science fiction, but he has this really interesting kind of formally experimental fantasy series that I think really deserves a lot of attention particularly if anyone's interested in looking into the history of queer fantasy how it developed the third book in the series Flight from Neverion is also I recently learned the first American novel to really address the AIDS crisis head on yeah. um, in, in a really meaningful way and yet these books are out of print and there's not a lot of scholarship on them there there's only you know a, a handful of scholars who have written work On this series. And I I really think it should be better known not only to people who are interested in fantasy, but also anyone who's interested in critical theory. Every chapter of every book in the series has kind of an epigram from a theoretical text. And through the kind of fantasy of this series, Delaney is using that as a way of riffing on various different post-structuralist and psychoanalytic and queer theoretical ideas so I, I really encourage people to check them out um they are currently out of print i think but you can find secondhand copies through amazon
0: googling it now and they have those um incredible i love the covers on them um they're the proper like the high
1: fantasy cover art like
2: yeah it's, it's very good just vintage 80s mm-hmm. And the covers and they're, they're gorgeous.
1: Palettes are very similar to some of the dildos we were looking at at the beginning of the, <laughs> <laughs> the,
2: the year. The, these books are incredibly horny on Maine.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's what I look for in a... Excellent.
2: Yeah, almost every male character is just a, a chunky bear. <laughs> um, you flip <laughs> on the page and you can... That, there's going to be a l- luxurious description of a large man
1: A
0: timely contribution to research. So we have literally two minutes left. So I'm going to give you our final big, big question, which is how would you unfuck the academy? Easy, right? (laughs) If you had a single central policy or idea that you think could create a more welcoming base that is kind of yeah inclusive? That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Not welcoming. What would it be?
2: I think the thing I'm going to talk about, because it's something that I do have very recent experience with, is material support for international students in general, particularly like in international PhD students and early career researchers. There's just lots and lots of statements getting released by universities, particularly over the past four or five years in the wake of things like Brexit. and whatnot about the value of the university as an international research community. Mm -hmm. But the reality for a lot of people who are not senior lecturers is that we don't see a lot of that in the way of material support. And, And in fact, what we often see instead is that the university becomes a compliant enforcer of hostile environment policies. And so I I think universities are in a position where they have the clout and have the kind of cultural cachet to push back against a lot of these Mm -hmm. policies and really lobby against them. And yet, often, apart from these outward gestures and these kind of statements that are released by management, there's often not much that we see
0: Are you saying the policy would be to abolish the hostile environment?
2: Yeah. And and I mean, I guess... A small task. Yeah. A small thing. Just a small thing. Potentially a little bit unfair because obviously it goes way beyond the academy. Of course. Um, You know, university management are not the people making these big government decisions. At the same time, I do think that universities are in a position to lobby politicians, to put pressure on the people who are making these policies. Mm -hmm. And often we're not seeing that happen. The universities are all too happy to become enforcers of those policies.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're just an extension of surveillance state structures in so many ways, like the whole tier four and
2: registration
0: of students across different levels of the university.
2: The fact that every semester during my PhD, I needed to check in to walk up Mm -hmm. to the round reading room with my passport and residence permit Mm -hmm. and student card and say, yes, I am still here. I'm still doing the work. The fact that my supervisors had to fill out a satisfactory academic progress form every semester to send off to the home office. Jeez. Yeah, it's all just.
0: I would love if they just sent chapters from the PhD and
1: stuff. <laughs> Dear home office, look at these gay dragons. Well, queer dragons.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, dragons.
1: I hear that Prey Patel loves a slot dragon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that you feel this way about slot dragons. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think on that note. On that note. note <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. So thank you so much for coming to Law My Praxis. And sorry if your search history is now completely fucked but that was Alex, not me. I'm not sorry at all.
0: If anything, you will now have an even more bespoke algorithm that will, se- will send you towards even better websites. You're welcome.
1: If you want to find out any more about Taylor's research, do you have anything that you would like to plug at this juncture? but not with a bad
0: dragon dildo slash bad plug.
1: (laughs) I can't, I can't believe I said plug after all of that conversation. (laughs) After all of that, plug.
2: Come on. (sighs) You can find me um, on Twitter at Taylor W. Driggers. Um, You can also find a talk that I recently gave part of the stay at home Fringe literary festival that's on YouTube. And if you just search, um, taylor driggers our monsters are different
1: and there's a really great analysis of uh, sasha velour's uh, lord of the rings performance which is really fantastic yeah
2: gotta have some Sasha great. thank you so much for having me this is great talking. no thank
0: you taylor that was that was wonderful <coughs> we've been lol my praxis if you liked what you heard you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review us on itunes a five-star output deserves five-star rating No reviewer 2 comments, please.
1: Shout out to our biggest fan, Dr Amy Bromley. You can get in touch with us at lawmypraxis at gmail.com or at lawmypraxis on Twitter. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter F and the number 6. Our shape this week. Triangle. Remember to tell all your friends with apologies for cross-posting. Please do not reply all. Bye. Coming up on Lol My Praxis. Alice in Wonderland. She can just fuck right up. We're joined by Dr. Jen Baker. Textual thanatologist with a ponchon for dead kids.